0: Hello and welcome to our third podcast for our poli 200 Intro to U.S. Politics. This podcast is titled The Evolution of Democracy. How has democracy in the United States changed? This podcast will look at sources from the 18th and 19th century to current news articles to, seek, to see how democracy has developed over the past 200 years. The student experts in this podcast will look at works of founding father James Madison, political scientist Robert Dahl, Political Observer and Theorist Alexis de Tocqueville, and American Sociologist C. Wright-Mills. We will also be discussing articles from The Atlantic and the Brookings Institute. We'll end our podcast today by talking about what democracy looks like and the important aspects and unique qualities of American democracy. First, we will discuss the Federalist Papers and what they look like and when they were written and the
1: importance of them today. Amy, thanks for joining us. What were the Federalist Papers? Written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, the Federalist Papers are a collection of politically charged and extremely articulate essays in favor of the United States Constitution. These 85 essays were written in direct response to any criticism against the Constitution and were a key element in the ratification of it. The essays ranged greatly in topic, frequently centralizing on the common objections people at that time had towards ratifying. Some of these topics were in regards to the powers of the federal government, how the government's powers would be separated, how these branches would function, the dangers of functions, and how, factions and how the Constitution protected against them. Each author supported a strong federal government and were in opposition of the Bill of Rights. Seventy-seven of the eighty-five said essays were printed between October of 1787 and August of 1788 and published in the Independent Journal, the New York Packet, and the Daily Advertiser. The other eight were added to the collection later. It is unclear the exact number of essays each man wrote. John Jay is generally understood to have written just five of these essays. He became ill a short time after writing the first four, and ended up taking a long break before writing his last one later. For James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, it is not as clear. Some have attributed two-thirds of the 85 essays to Hamilton, Following his death, but Madison disagreed, stating that he had written a, st- a substantial amount more than estimated. This confusion is due to the fact that the authors went to Great Lakes to hide their identities from the public. They worked in secret and wrote under a single pen name, Publius. This fake name was a nod to the great Roman, Publius Valerius Publicola, who was an instrumental voice in the formation of the Roman Republic. John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton, hoped to be instrumental in the establishment of their own republic as well. Their hopes ultimately became reality.
0: What is the importance of Federalist Paper
1: Number 10? Federalist Paper Number 10 was written by James Madison and directly addressed how the Constitution would protect against a great danger of democracy, factions, and why a large representative republic was the best option for America. Madison argued that many of the issues that government takes blame for are actually the fault of factions. The official definition of a faction is individuals united and actuated by some common impulse of passion, or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens. A faction is a group of people who disagree with others and are willing to enforce their own wills above another, infringing upon others' rights and liberties. Madison feared this greatly, and he used Federalist Number no. Ten to instill that fear in the heart in the public's heart as well. The essay continues to explain why tyranny of the majority, or mob rule, was an enemy to the republic they were creating. Madison argued that a representative republic was a much better choice than direct democracy. Federalist Number 10 presents two methods to inhibit the formation of factions. One, to get rid of liberty, which was not acceptable. Liberty was what the colonies had fought for and had to protect at all costs. And two, to make everyone exactly the same uniform so as not to cause citizens to break off and form factions in the first place. This is not only completely impossible, it would be a huge loss to our country. James Madison believed that diversity in politics and opinion was one of the greatest strengths of America and that the government must protect it at all costs. He also believed that people with different opinions would always group together with those whom they agree with. It is part of human nature to do so. One of the other dividing and driving forces towards factions is wealth. Madison cites wealth as one of the key motivators of faction. Clearly, factions could not be prevented from forming. So if they couldn't be prevented, the government should monitor and regulate them. This is the sole purpose of laws. Madison argued that the natural tendency of people in power to either be or become corrupted was inevitable. This meant that people couldn't rely on original religion, or morals to save them. In forming a government, founders need to carefully put in place structures and laws to protect against human beings' natural corruptibility. In addition to all these points of thought being brought into public attention and the political discussion, Federalist Paper Number 10 was extremely important because it outlines the biggest motivators the founding fathers had for structuring our political system the way it was especially when it came to the federal government, and paved the way to protect every citizen's right, regardless of whether they are a part of a minority or majority group.
0: What does Federalist Paper No. 51 say about
1: democracy in the United States? Federalist Paper No. 51, also written by James Madison, covers the importance of the division of powers and checks and balances within the United States government. To preserve liberty, the government has to have separated powers. Separating the federal government eliminates the majority of risks presented by strengthening the central government the way the Constitution did. Madison knew these branches of government had to be as separated as possible and have as little to do with one another as feasibly possible. This is in order to protect against some rising above some rising above the others, or the government gaining too much power overall and being more susceptible to corruption. The branches are intended to watch over one another and ensure that no one oversteps their constitutional powers. Madison believed people by nature are incredibly power hungry and government will always be a representation of mankind's weakness. If people were perfect, there would be no need for a government at all. Federalist No. 51 asserts that government needs to be constructed in such a way that it can govern the governed, but also govern itself. Aside from the careful construction of government, Federalist No. 51 gave responsibility to the citizens. The essay told the people that they must also watch and be careful that each branch does not overstep its constitutional rights, powers, or responsibilities, that every and even extra precautions must be taken to prevent abuse of power. The legislative branch being closest to the people was outlined to be the biggest and the most powerful of the branches because it holds so much power, it also had to be divided in itself to disperse the weight of this power. This is why we have the House of Representatives and Senate. Federalist Number 51 says that each part of our government is responsible for controlling themselves and using their power in appropriate ways and in its proper way allotted. The priority of any republic should be the protection of citizens' rights.
0: My last question to you is, why are the Federalist Papers important today?
1: The Federalist Papers were written in response to criticism about virtually every part of the Constitution. Because of this, they can be used to more clearly grasp the full picture of Madison's dream democracy. In this sense, the essays are a perfect illustrator for what Madison hoped the American Republic would look like. Today, these essays may still be used to judge the changes our democracy has undergone in the 233 years since its formation in 1787. The Federalist Papers are important because they give Americans a reference for how today's version of American democracy has shifted. Additionally, the Federalist Papers are critical for further understanding of the Constitution. The Supreme Court and public have turned to the Federalist Papers in the past for clarification on the Constitution, such as in Bill Clinton's impeachment trial, citing that our Founding Fathers intended impeachment to be reserved for official misdemeanors versus personal. The quote used for that was found in the Federalist Papers. Jeffrey Rosen examines the history of the American Republic in an effort to answer the question, is democracy dying? The history and arguments he presents surrounding the Federalist Papers and how democracy has shifted today are well-researched, thought out, and display, in my opinion. Similarly, how well-researched, organized, and intentional Madison was in writing the Constitution. James Madison read dozens upon dozens of books about failed democracies before presenting or even arriving at the Constitutional Convention. Determined to avoid the fate of those ancient and modern confederacies, he learned all he could from these democracies and formed his theories on the varying grounds of where others had failed. His reading convinced him too much passion would be involved in a direct democracy. He settled on the conclusion that a republic was our best option. Plato theorized that a republic could not could only work in a small community. Madison directly challenged Plato's Small Republic thesis. He identified patterns and and events like Shays' Rebellion and planned how to act against them. He feared history would repeat itself, so he sought to have it founded as a representative Republic. In Jeffrey Rosen's essay, he points out countless issues that today's version of American democracy has. There are purposely built cooling mechanisms into the Constitution to deflate passionate issues and allow for reasonable decision making. These cooling mechanisms have long since broken, says Rosen. Madison valued long-term interests over short-term gratification. Imagine if the majority of American citizens today sought political activism in the way that Madison did. Polarization of Congress has become a great hurdle in passing important legislation. Madison wanted branches of government separate from each other and to check one another today our branches of government are stepping far over the intended boundaries outlined Madison intended the executive branch to be weak and not directly involved with the public mind Presidents today make emotional appeals communicate directly to voters and indulge some mob mentality This is not what he had intended Arthur M. Schulzinger Jr. called it an imperial presidency and claims it has left our country's political balance askew. Presidents continue to rule by executive order rather than let legislation legislative branches decide on policy. Today the news and media close the country's communication gaps but broadens information gap. People read quick opinion pieces rather than forming their opinions for themselves. This media polarization has allowed physically distant citizens to gravitate together, creating more widespread virtual factions. Has the internet killed democracy? Jeffrey Rawson also asks, what would Madison say if he could see our country today? For all the issues and countless more, Rosson provides a single solution. that constitutional education backed up by um, information in the Federalist Papers Is the only key to turning our country around. People must look back to find the dream of our country's beginning and learn to understand for themselves the role they are meant to play in democracy in order to
2: keep Madison's
1: Republic alive.
0: Thank you so much Amy. Now let's move, let's talk about Robert Dahl and the concept of pluralism and
2: American democracy.
0: Kim, thank you so much for joining us. According to Dahl, who has a power in the United States?
3: According to Dahl, the disappearance of elite power has not led to the emergence of rule by the people, but rather a relationship between leaders and citizens. This is like the relationship between state and federal government in dual fe- federalism. Dahl in his writing, Who Governs?, describes two groups of people as being the political stratum and the apolitical stratum. The political stratum are those interested and in involved citizens, The apolitical stratum are those who do not take an active part in government. Dahl talks about these two groups having both indirect and direct influence on policies and the government as a whole. The political stratum are the the direct influence. They are the main bearers of political skills. Among this group, politics is highly salient, whereas with the apolitical, it is more remote. The, polit- the political stratum runs off of na- rational thoughts and not off of emotional limbs. As a group, their goals are to influence habit, unexamined loyalties, personal attachments, and the emotions of the public. Dahl talks about the apolitical stratum being a disorganized and disconnected group of people. This is where the majority of people lie this is due to lack of education of policies and laws and what is happening within the government they are disconnected and solely run off of emotions they are still active in politics though this is why the political stratum is needed to control the wills of the people and their emotional behaviors this is seen in today's government in what the founding fathers were trying to prevent this is Seeing that the House of Representatives Representatives representing the people and their wills and the Senate trying to control the people and what they want. They are more rational and are trying to do what is right for the nation as a majority and not just help a minority. Although the majority is in the apolitical stratum, the political stratum is open and could be entered by anyone who has the knowledge and that can think rationally. It is simpler for the majority to be a part of the apolitical stratum due to their lack of knowledge. This this does not stop their voices from being heard, though. We can see the voices of the people being heard today in social media. Any opinion and thought that someone has can be thrown out there and debated. Different policies and laws can also be debated by a wide range of individuals in the apolitical stratum as well as in the political stratum due to the introduction of social media in the 21st century. Could
0: you explain what pluralism is to our audience?
3: Yes. Robert Dahl in Who Governs writes, that the classic statement of pluralism is the dispersion of power among many groups of people. He uses the example of New Haven, explaining that New Haven gradually changed from an oligarchy to pluralism. Oligarchy is explained as political resources being marked by a cumulative inequality. When one individual was better, much better off than the other one, wait. Like, than the other in one resource, he usually was better off in every resource. Dahl explains pluralism further in saying that when dominated by many different sets of leaders with access to different political resources, is the dispersion of power among many different individuals. In the article, "Who Governs? Elitism, Pluralism, and Tradeoffs." explains the pluralist theory as the political power resting with competing interest groups who share influence in the government. This is assuming that whoever wants to be involved will be active in community. Elite members do not control the government. People with sharing interests will form groups in order to make their decisions known to the politicians. We see this today in America in the media and the pushing of the two oppositions pinning against each other on every se- single topic and problem.
0: How is pluralism different than elitism? Um, in, the,
3: in the article, Who Governs Elitism, Pluralism, and Trade-Offs, the pluralist theory is that the political power rests with the competing interest groups who, who share influence in the government. The elitist theory on the other hand is described as a set of elite citizens in charge of the government in the United States and that others have no influence. C. Wright Mills in The Power Elite argues that government is controlled by business, military, and political elites. He describes the elitists, as not reflecting the experience of average Americans and that most of these men are a part of Congress. This is going back to the political stratum and the apolitical stratum that Robert Dahl speaks of. Louis A. Kozier also agrees with this theory and says that the power elite are the top businessmen. This is again the political stratum. Individuals that take part in in the stratum are also constrained by the competitive relation that exists between multiple centers of power. There is There is not really a problem with power elites in our country today because only a small number of power holders have enough power to initiate or veto proposals by themselves. One of the quotes that I liked by Peter Rossi from this reading that describes pluralism and elitist ideas, well, is that in both actual influence equals potential influence, modified by opportunity, interest, and decision-making machinery. This can also tie back into the political and apolitical stratum, in that if you are active in, in society and work directly or indirectly, your voice will be heard one way or another.
0: With all that being said, in your opinion, which more accurately describes American democracy? Pluralism or elitism?
3: Um, I actually had a tough time answering this question, but I believe that wait, but I believe the one that more accurately describes America today is both. I believe that we have a pluralistic society with Dahl's definition, having two opposing groups with the political and the apolitical. If citizens are involved, then we will have a pluralist. Well, pluralistic society because there will always be different views. There will always be different views and people taking opposing sides. This is especially relevant with the use of social media nowadays. We now have the opportunity to communicate with almost every different idea on every different subject and it will and it is all held within our hands. That is crazy to think about, but everyone has the opportunity to act indirectly and to be active within the society and to change government. This also causes the problem of elitism though. Although we are talking and debating issues, most of us are only doing it online and will not take the problems to Congress and to the streets. We have confidence to state what we believe online, but we will not own that pub- publicly. Um, this causes elites to gain power and to be able to make and pass their own policies. I believe that, is, that it is less noticeable today, but it is still a problem that America deals with. Although you'll have to gain a lot of power to make any noticeable difference, you're still making a difference. It is a lot harder for normal citizens to make, to take charge and to make differences by just talking about their issues online. Also, most of the problems turn into yelling at the opposing side rather than making compromises. To sum this up, they both accurately describe American democracy, pluralism being more of the apolitical spectrum and elitism being more of the political spectrum.
0: Thank you so much, Kim. Now that we started talking about elitism, let's take a deeper dive and talk about C. Wright Mills and look at elitism in American democracy. Logan, thank you guys so much for joining us. So my first question to you is, according to Mills, who has a power in the United States?
4: Well, according to Mills, there is a power elite in modern societies, an elite who commands the resources of vast bureaucratic organizations that have come to dominate industrial societies. Most believe this power, the power elite, are the key people in three major institutions of modern society. These three institutions were the economy, the government, and the military. These people find themselves at some of the highest positions within the United States bureaucracy because of their wealth. With this wealth, they control major institutions that hold the majority of the power within the United States. He believes that the government, economy, and military have become the front-runners of power because all other major institutions have either diminished in scope and power, and and been pushed to the side of modern history, or made subordinate to this Big Three. Of the Big Three, Mills believe the corporate sector is the most most powerful, and directly quoting him, but the power elite cannot be understood as a mere reflection of economic elites, Rather, it is an alliance of economic, political, and military power. When you think about it, a majority of the US budget is spent within these three sectors. And at the top of these sectors, you see reoccurring themes. Highly educated white males that have massive massive amounts of wealth. Mills also saw two other levels of power in American society, which were below the power elite. At the bottom are the great masses of, of the people the people are largely unorganized, informed, and virtually powerless. They are controlled and manipulated from above. The other level of power includes local opinion leaders and special interest groups. They never represent, or neither represent the masses nor have any real effect on the elite. He considered them the middle level of power. Wright believed that the Congress and political parties debate and solve minor issues but that the power elite ensures that no serious challenge to its authority and control is tolerated in the political arena. Perfect. You
0: started to explain the power elite theory. Could you explain that a little bit more to us?
4: Yeah. The power elite theory is the ideology that a few are the driving forces behind government and democracy. These few people use their wealth and power to influence the government into shaping things the way they want. A foremost supporter of the elite theory, as we have discussed, is C. Wright Mills. The elite use their wealth to secure systems of government and bring their own influences into it. These advantages of the few bring certain interests in the political process and are based on unequal distribution of economic and political power. This is the ideology that the power of the few could hurt the power of the majority. For instance, in a 1975 study, Peter Friedag. Found that between 1897 and 1973, 76% of all cabinet members possessed corporate affiliations. What is even more interesting is that Friedrich found that little difference existed between Republican and Democratic cabinet members, 78% and 73 respectively. When it came to the corporate affiliations, I think it is important to note that the power elite theory isn't a conspiracy theory though. These elites aren't just sitting down around a table to make every decision for America, but that they have certain influences on issues within our democratic society that can and may hurt the majority protecting corporate business, government, and military interests. An example of this is the war with Iraq and George W. Bush's cabinet, specifically Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill had had ties to an aluminum company called Alcoa that mainly relies on defense or defense contracts to create a source of income. When the US went to war with Iraq and the Treasury Secretary O'Neill was voicing his support for the war on terrorism, he was certainly benefiting from the defense contract that they received then. This is just one demonstration of the possible influence elite corporate business owners can have within the US government. This now-surface view that the elite were running things brought new views to social scientists scientists after World War II because America was yet very prideful of their success. This would change with the social scientists amid the 1960s and 1970s while the country faced turmoil between its borders. Even since the publication of the power elite, the elite has found itself at the highest levels of government, which I believe has led to things like corporate taxation levels um, and taxation levels on the highest brackets of individuals, greatly diminishing, um, as well as unionization rates plummeting in court amid court decisions striking at their organizational strategies, while the minimum wages remain stagnant.
0: Do you think the power elite theory accurately describes America today?
4: Um, I do believe that the power elite theory does describe America today. But it has changed since the time of Mills and his power elite theory. I feel like the country only moves as fast as the heads of government and the economy and the military want. While I do believe the power elite influencing decision, influence def- decisions, I think that it is important to say that I do not believe this is a conspiracy of the elite trying to... control troll the country, as C. Wright Mills had feared. Each elite individual may hold power, but I do not think that they are all sitting around a large mahogany table making every decision for the United States. Everyone, I believe, probably had their own agenda or has their own agenda and pockets they are looking to protect, which they can use as an influence. But I do believe that the people in power are still looking out for what they believe is America's best interests. An interesting thing to be aware of and watch closely for is to see how some of our economic elite of Wall Street handle the past past and future dealings with the stock market. Like recently, there was a huge ordeal with a Reddit page, GameStop, and the stock market. This happened when the page influenced citizens into buying stocks into GameStop, raising their value dramatically. While a lot of the big players within the stock market were foreseeing GameStop to continue to decline, This costs a lot of economic elite people a lot of money, and the ordinary citizens who invest a good-sized profit. Because while the power elite theory describes country, in my opinion, I think an example like this is a feel-good story for people not as economically privileged as the economic elite that have been making big money, and big money for a long time. With all that being said, the country has been trending upward with its corporate elites from huge businesses finding themselves within presidential cabinets. For example, Trump has taken this to a whole new level. His administration has featured more individuals coming from, cor- from the corporate sphere than any recent administration at 72%. This included individuals such as former Secretaries of State Rex Tillerson, who was the CEO of ExxonMobil. And this beat George W. Bush's cabinet, which was the next highest at 64%.
0: Is the system you just described about the power elite democratic?
4: Um, I believe it is, although it may not be the fairest to the the citizens of the United States. the uh, The wealthy and powerful who find themselves at the highest positions within the United States, they find themselves there for a reason. And that is because they have been successful within whatever career they've had. I don't think it is justified to buy your way into a position, but If you are highly educated and have continued what has probably been a generational wealth, I don't see how it wouldn't be democratic, especially when you look at elected officials. A lot of the time, you are voting for someone who would fit into this elite category. So if anything, if America wants to get rid of its elites holding the most power in American democracy, then American society as a whole would have to readjust its values. Because economic success seems to be held at a very high standard the american dream is the pursuit of happiness in the land of economic opportunity i think these mostly white males have found a way of success within our system the only way i can see this is morally unethical is because a lot of these elites wealth is generational it limits the opportunity for any group of minorities to find their way into these positions as until recently and still probably not even now Minorities haven't had the same economic opportunity as the white males who find themselves within the heads of government, military, and the economy, which is a factor of the systematic racism that we see in today's society. While these powerful elite may find themselves at the top of today's society, that can and will change over time. Roughly 30 of the 50 companies that dominated the economy when Mills wrote the power elite no longer find themselves dominating U.S. business anymore. This includes firms in once seemingly impregnable industries such as steel, rubber, and food, which I think is one of the beaut- beauties of American democracy and, and the economy, either adapt or get left behind, which gives us a new wave of potential candidates and heads of these three, um, these three sectors. And yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Logan. Now for our next topic, let's talk about equality in American democracy according to Alexis de Tocqueville. Kinzer, thank you so much for joining us. My first question is, who is Alexis de Tocqueville, and what was his work about?
5: Alexis well, de Tocqueville was a French political scientist and sociologist in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Born to a French aristocratic family in 1805, Tocqueville came of age surrounded by the emergence of such ideas as liberty and equality, spurred on by the wave of revolutions that dominated France throughout this period. In his younger years, Tocqueville served in a variety of administrative positions. However, his situation changed with the rise of the monarch Louis Philippe in 1830. Tocqueville, along with, his friends, uh, along with his friend Gustave Dumont, was sent on a research, research expedition to the Una- United States, initially with the purpose of studying the, friend- the American penal system. During this relatively short time in the U.S., the duo crisscrossed the country, observing and indulging in nearly every faucet of American society as possible, even having the extraordinary opportunity to interview President, President Andrew Jackson during their time in the nation's capital. It was due to this trip that his work evolved past a simple overview of American prisons and into an expose of the American democracy itself. Tocqueville developed the desire to describe the benefits and consequences of the American political system in order for his European peers to take note and benefit from them as well. His book, titled Democracy in America, would contain Tocqueville's observations of the American democratic system and would also be a platform for him to give his own opinions and predictions about its potential in the future. The primary factor Tocqueville focused on was equality, particularly the equality of conditions. Tocqueville believed that equality was both the great social and political idea of his lifetime and the ultimate goal of all democracies in his perception. Amer- I'm sorry, and in his perception, America provided the most advanced form of equality at that point in history. Aside from equality, Tocqueville gave his own descriptions and thoughts about other forms of American society, such as his admiration admiration of American individualism, the stability of the economy, and the popularity of religion. Also, he provided his own predictions and forewarnings about the future of democracy. For example, he feared that the pursuit of equality would ultimately give rise to despotism, but that lack of structures to mediate the relationship between the government and its people would create a state, a state dominated by the tyranny of the majority. After nearly a nine-month journey, Tocqueville would return to France, and his work would be published and rise to exceptional popularity across the continent. His later life would see him once again hold administrative administrative positions in government, as well as an attempt to write the history of the French people. Nevertheless, he would die at his home in Normandy due to a bad tuberculosis in 1859.
0: How does Tocqueville describe American democracy?
5: Tocqueville, originally a disbeliever in the institution of democracy, was awestruck and ultimately persuaded by what he saw in the American system. Essentially, Tocqueville saw the U.S. as the world's closest example of a healthy, functioning democracy and a representative that the world world could follow into the future. The aspect that struck Tocqueville the most was the level of equality he observed during his time in America. In his eyes, the state in in pursuit of equality governed all aspects of American society, from the direction of public opinion to the creation of uh, of sediments and laws. It was through this lens that Tocqueville stated what he describes as the eternal state of the American democracy. of constant democratic revolution. The people of the U.S. would persistently strive for equal rights and conditions, and and through which gender, racial, ethnic, and economic barriers would be shattered and a state of true equality would be implemented. Furthermore, Tocqueville observed the vast amount of civil associations that saturated the American landscape. These associations fostered a sense of community amongst the American people and pushed all citizens to participate in the American democracy. Working civil associations were the most prominent factor in Tocqueville's view of a flourishing democracy, and it is due to this that he applied that label to the American iteration. However, Tocqueville also described several other aspects that either aided or hindered the innate democratic pursuit of equality. Among these was the presence of religion, Christianity in particular, that he found in America. In the French Revolution in its aftermath, Tocqueville thought he saw the role of religion in democracy, one of aiding the people's rights, but then ultimately being attacked by those that. By those that they helped, however, this reaction never occurred in the United States, and Christianity worked to implement its virtuous beliefs into the American way of life, thereby restraining the chances of the democracy's tendency to let its quest for equality rage out of control. Nevertheless, Tocqueville saw uncertainty on the horizon for the United States, primarily due to the factors that had already been installed in its democracy. These two aspects were slavery and the threat of despotism. Slavery counteracted the natural democratic pursuit of equality, and Tocqueville feared that its continuation would result in massive conflict and destruction, and perhaps the U.S. entering a state where civil rights of all were trampled upon. Furthermore, the existence of a capitalist system in America naturally divided the people into socioeconomic classes. He worried, he worried that this state would lead to contention between the classes, causing the rise of a despot that would, uh, that would lead to the subjugation of all. In short, Tokyo described the U.S. as the world's closest example of, true, of a true democracy, but also observed factors that counteracted its typical tendencies and a few that would lead to its downfall.
0: Why does Tocqueville believe equality is important to a successful democracy?
5: Equality is essentially the core tenet of democracy. First and foremost, it is the concept that gives rise to democratic structures in the first place. The coming of ideas of equality to those oppressed by the ancient systems of aristocracy and monarchy would eventually lead to their empowerment, pushing them ever more to strive for the achievement of equal status, uh, equal status as their oppressors. Over time, actions and events would push these classes and groups closer together in terms of rights, eventually resulting in the two coexisting on the same platform, with democratic institutions replacing the tyrannical systems of old. Furthermore, this sense of equality is the source is, is, the source of the power that keeps democracy alive and to eventually spread. In the perception of Tocqueville, the public commitment to equality was the centerpiece of democratic governments, and through it, the barriers and perils that threaten its continuing existence, such as gender inequality, racism, and slavery, will be shattered, and the survival of the democracy ensured. Moreover, as more democracies arise, their principles of equality will spread across the land, embedding in the minds and hearts of those who are still oppressed and inspire them to seek the promises that democracy provides. The very institutions of democracy also trace their roots back to this central idea of equal conditions. So associations, which foster a uh, shared sense of citizenship and equal rights amongst the populace, are the thing that Tocqueville sees as the critical piece of evidence to describe a healthy democracy. On you know, the structure, uh, the structure of local self-government, and the very, the structure of local self-government, and the very opinion of the public are created by equality's presence, and they in turn spread equality throughout the country. Equality is an essential piece to the development, preservation, and spread of democracy. However, its importance also lies in its ability to bring about its demise. Such an emphasis on equality creates an opportunity for those to abuse its influence and ultimately attain power. Despots, those who masquerade as champions of democracy and equality. But in reality, wish to implement the principles of oppression and tyranny can use this sentiment to rally public support and come to power, and cause the collapse of democratic institutions into a more tyrannical form of government. Furthermore, the push for democracy can cause hostility and contention to arise between conflicting parties, resulting in bloodshed and the possible rise of oppression on behalf of the victor against those it had contended with previously. Equality is a critical component of democracy, being the center factor in nearly all facets of its identity. Inspiration, spread, content, and even, and even being the origin of its possible downfall.
0: My last question for you is: Do you think Tocqueville would describe America today the same way he saw it back in the 19th century?
5: Despite the current state of our democracy still retaining many aspects, many of the aspects that inspired and now, Tocqueville, I think he would have a he would have a different interpretation than what he had in the 19th century. The essence of Tocqueville's view, the idea that America is the world's closest example of a pure democracy, one that has achieved, or has nearly achieved, a state, a state of equal conditions has, in my opinion, become even more apparently false. While we have long ridden, uh, ridden ourselves of the evil specter of slavery, vast amounts of racial and ethnic minority, minorities still live in squalor and poverty. Ghettos and inner cities of American metropolises are filled with the downtrodden and oppressed due to factors such as government neglect, old practices of segregation, and the internal presence of racism. Furthermore, these minorities endured considerable discrimination in the workplace and in other facets of society, suffering lower wages than their white counterparts and facing the chance of being denied job opportunities simply based on their identity. Acts of violence, such as killings and brutality committed by law enforcement, encapsulate this and display that the state of equal conditions that Tocqueville described and admired is simply no more or has never existed at all. Furthermore, Tocqueville would discover that many of his worst predictions for the future of the American democracy would have, in fact, come true. Although he admired American individualism, Tocqueville feared that it would one day divide and separate us, a prospect that has now come to fruition. The American people are as fractured as ever. With ever-growing partisanship and racial and societal divides fracturing us into ever smaller factions and groups, the United States is quickly becoming the image that Tocqueville conjured when thinking about the fate of our grand republic. However, despite the numerous changes that have altered our democracy since Tocqueville's observation, many of them to the detriment of his initial impression, there still remain remain some glimmers of the hope he once saw. Civil associations, the very thing that Tocqueville depicted as a sign of a healthy democracy, still flourish and are actively used by citizens across the country, as seen in the massive turnout of the 2020 presidential election. Moreover, vast amounts of our population still still strive to achieve the ever-precious state of equality that Tocqueville once used to describe our nation. In action, we have observed in recent years with the growth of the Campaign for Greater Rights for Minorities and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. If Toko were to see the current state of the American democracy, he would see several factors that would give the implication that we have strayed from the path. However, he would also observe the continuation in numerous aspects that inspired his original hope in the democratic style of go- governance, resulting in him having a different but albeit balanced view of the current American democracy.
0: Thank you so much, Kinzer. Our last expert today is going to talk about American democracy and what it looks like today. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. My first question to you is, what are some moral principles to ensure governing
2: is democratic? Recently, we have seen a shift in ethical leadership not being at being important as long as citizens agree with the leader's policies. Ethical leadership is crucial because democracies are built on ethical principles. There are three moral virtues that must be upheld in order to ensure our democracy survives. These moral virtues are truthfulness, justice, and temperance. The first, truthfulness, is essential in allowing citizens to provide meaningful input in the policy-making process. If the public has a hard time learning facts, especially if the leader of our country is lying, it will greatly hurt our democracy because citizens will not be able to provide input based on facts, leading to flawed policies that are based on false information. We can see the need for truthfulness in our past president, Donald Trump. Trump made 22,000 false or misleading claims from the time that he took office until August of 2020. One of Trump's biggest mistakes in this area was not stating the truth of COVID-19 to the public. And since then, the United States has lost, lost thousands of citizens to the deadly virus. The second moral virtue, justice, depends on fairness and transparency, which in many cases we are lacking. The best example of the need for justice is in the way we draw our congressional district maps. These maps are drawn so that voters of one political party are concentrated in a way that results in one party receiving a larger share of seats in Congress, even when they didn't get a larger number of votes. This process can also be known as gerrymandering which undermines the foundational principle of equality in our democracy. The final moral virtue is temperance. In a democracy, not everyone can get their way and get what they want 100% of the time. When someone does not get their way, they need to be respectful of the other side or person who does. It is impossible for us to move forward and grow as a country if we cannot respect each other and work with all citizens, no matter what side they are on. Good leaders of a country must be aware of the need for temperance. Leaders must not divide people, but bring people together for the greater good of the nation. Because in a democracy, everyone is important.
0: Is democracy in the United States in
2: danger of failing? There are many signs that point to the fact that our democracy indeed is in danger. Even something as simple as our loss of moral virtues that I previously discussed is a sign that our democracy is being threatened. One of the biggest threats facing our democracy today is tyranny. As Plato once said, tyranny is probably established out of no other regime than democracy. When a democracy has fully ripened and any kind of equality will not be tolerated, multiculturalism and sexual freedom are abundant, the poor and rich are blended together, foreigners are equal to citizens, The patriarchy is down, and there is a full license to do whatever one wants. There reaches a point where there is no known authority, political experience, or expertise. This ripe, advanced, full-fledged form of democracy is when a tyrant has the chance to seize power. This tyrant, though often an elite himself, will attack the wealthy and claim to be the answer to all the internal conflicts within the democracy. A question that came about through my reading was, is past president Donald Trump a tyrant? And there are a lot of signs that point to yes. Trump gives legitimacy and validity to the worst of human impulses. One of Trump's biggest tyrant qualities is his lack of self-control, especially when it came to Twitter and giving his input on subjects he knew nothing about. The topic of Twitter brings us to another threat to our democracy, the media. The media has made democratic culture fueled by emotion and feeling instead of reason. The more emotions a candidate shows, the more supporters they will get. Take Barack Obama, for example. He got the power of the web behind him, had great charisma, and was a media celebrity, all of which aided him in winning the presidency. As the media has become debased, it has reduced foreign coverage and news based on hard facts and has instead shifted to be entertaining rather than informing, The media has also played a role in allowing our country to become more polarized, which, got, which does great harm to our democracy and our ability to get things done. A polarized nation and a lack of bipartisanship in Congress causes many segments of society to be left out, leaving them unable to achieve a good life through hard work, which is one of the things America is based on. What I have stated are only a few of many signs that argue our democracy is endangered. Few saving graces point towards a way for us to fix this looming problem.
0: Could you explain a little bit of what American citizens and what their influence can be in democracy today?
2: American citizens are supposed to have an important role in our democracy. After all, it is a democracy. But that doesn't mean they always do. Take what happened in Oxford, Massachusetts, for example. The residents of Oxford were angered at the company that supplied their water because they charged high prices with terrible service. The people in Oxford wanted to buy the company out, so they raised the money to do so and then were to have a vote on it. When the vote was called, the measure had failed and Aquarinon remained the town's water supplier. The people were not happy with this and decided to call a second vote when lobbyists from Aquarinon pulled the fire alarm, which prevented the second vote from taking place. This is a perfect example of how even in deliberation and direct democracy, power is not in the hands of the people. We see the preferences of average American citizens have almost no effect on public policy, just like in Oxford. One of the main areas we see this in is in the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana. While many states have made accommodations to people's wants in this area, the federal government has not. A study conducted showed that the economic elites and narrow interest groups were the most influential on public policy, not mass-based interest groups or the views of ordinary citizens. The system is not working for the average American citizen, and there is not a lot they can do about it. Digital media has made Americans understand what direct democracy is like. People can, for example, go vote for their favorite couple on Dancing with the Stars and see what it looks like when their vote makes a direct and immediate impact. People see this in the media and then when they turn to their government, their government seems unresponsive because voters do not see their votes ingrained in the decisions made by politicians. One silver lining we do have is the 2020 presidential election. In this election, people made their voices heard more than ever before, with a record voter turnout. This election showed how much people thought was at stake in this election, and how much they wanted changes to be made so that they could play an important role in our democracy. Despite the polarization of our country, the electoral process proved resilient because of the people. So while the average American citizen may not be well represented in democracy, they might have a big role in saving it.
0: My last question for you is, in your opinion,
2: why has democracy lasted for the past 200 years? Well, the United States was actually founded as a republic and not a democracy. The popular views of citizens were intended to be translated into public policy through the election of representatives. These representatives were put in place to decide what policies would be in the best interest of the country, even if that is not what the citizens want. The founders of our country were worried about popular democracy, and this is one of the main reasons that so many checks and balances were worked into our law of the land, the Constitution. However, over time, the idea that people should rule became a lot more appealing and even just made more sense. Industrialization, immigration, westward expansion, and the progressive era progressive era made this a reality. Slavery was ended by the Civil War, senators became elected directly by the people, the 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote, the Voting Rights Act protected African-Americans' right to vote, and we fought two world wars in order to defend and protect democracy. All of these things helped develop the idea of government of the people, by the people, for the people. And so our democracy was formed. Because of this story, I think that the reason we have a democracy that has lasted so long is because we decided that we wanted one and have adapted that republic to a democracy and continuously allowed that democracy to change and develop over time. Even now, our democracy continues to adapt to modern times, especially with the creation of the internet. While the media has done some detrimental things to our society and democracy, it has also brought some positives along with it. The media, at the same time has as hurting our democracy, has also furthered our democracy by giving everyone access and the chance to find information, make their voices heard, and build a platform. There used to be barriers to entry on who could access information and learn about politics because of cost or other reasons. But with the internet, all of that is gone, therefore furthering our democracy. Anyone can bring people together for a meeting or rally with something as simple as a webpage or tweet on Twitter. Anything is possible. Our democracy has lasted so long because we have allowed it to. But if we don't address the issues that endanger our democracy, we have the chance of losing it. To continue to keep our democracy, we have to want it.
0: Thank you so much, Katie. As we have learned through all of our five experts, American democracy has no doubt changed over time, especially since the Declaration of Independence, the ratification of the Constitution, and through the 19th and 20th century. In our conclusion, I would like for us to talk about what makes American democracy unique, how it has evolved, and some ways to make it better. So my first question is, what are some ways to describe American democracy?
3: Um, Democracy in America is held in a very high esteem and is one of the main aspects of our country that we pride ourselves on having. Americans look at our democracy as something that puts us above other countries and we will defend democracy at all costs, hence why we have fought multiple wars just to protect democracy and democratic ideals. We are the most developed and successful example of a functioning democracy to exist. Our our democracy has institutions such as civil associations, the distinct aspect of individuals and culture, and widespread religious adherence all that foster its continu- continuation and spread. American democracy is described as representative because citizens vote for elected of- officials to represent them and act in, the be- in their best interests and in the best interests of the country. American democracy is also a pluralist society, meaning that we have many groups in our society that form based on common interests. That makes their wants and needs known to politicians. These groups can either directly or indirectly influence politicians and laws. This relationship between the leaders and citizens in America
2: makes up our democratic republic. Our democracy is based on achieving a state of equal conditions, having free and fair elections, having the participation of citizens in politics, and protecting human rights. Just because our democracy is based on these things, though, does not mean that they always happen. In fact, our neglect of some of the basic principles of our democracy is one of the main reasons why it is very likely that our democracy is endangered. American democracy today is a pluralist society. This means that we have many groups in our society that form based on common interests. They form in order to make their decisions known by politicians. Robert Dahl describes pluralism as having only two groups within the American democracy, and those are the apolitical and the political. In other words, those who are directly influencing and those who are indirectly influencing politicians and laws. In American democracy, there is this relationship between the leaders and the citizens that makes up the democratic republic that we have in America.
0: My next question is, How has American democracy changed over the past 200 years?
1: The republic that our Founding Fathers intended is not exactly the best replica of our democracy today. Drawing from the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, James Madison had a very specific vision for American democracy. A large union protected from the issues that factions bring. An executive ruler free from passionate speech and a weaker branch of the three. A political scene with great diversity, none taking away the rights of others. A system that protects against tyranny from the majority or minority.
4: Today, we live in a
1: society where we are seeing the negative consequences of factions. In an article discussing whether or not democracy is dying, Jeffrey Rosen asserts that today's more extreme political parties fall into much the same definition of factions that Madison feared. He points out that we are also continually electing presidents that aren't strictly sticking to the letter and spirit of the Constitution. All these concerns or more would, strong, would be strongly opposed by Madison, in my opinion. In short, I feel that the representative republic that our founding fathers fought for has started to fade, and in its place, more direct democracy is starting to gain attention. The exact form of democracy is that Madison warned against.
4: American democracy over the last 200 years had changed in many facets, particularly in the sense of equality. Over the past two centuries, strides have been made in the quest to bring equality to all those who call themselves Americans, with actions such as the abolition of slavery and the spread of the right of suffrage to all those who seek it. However, the facade of America as the righteous standard barrier of freedom and equality has since been torn down the Civil War the era of of Jim Crow and segregation and the current covert oppression of minorities have dramatically shown that in fact the idea that the United States is the image of a perfect and functioning democracy is simply false in short the United States has changed significantly across the past 200 years uh, making great strides to ensure the benefits of equality to all its citizens concurrently losing its image as a champion of such ideals.
0: Let's end today's discussion with talking about what are some of the ways to strengthen or improve democracy in the United States.
5: The American, uh, the American democracy, while historically a relatively stable and prosperous institution, is not a structure without its inherent flaws. While it does have its beneficial traits, there are numerous ways in which to strengthen or improve the functions of the American democracy. Perhaps most prominent uh, prominent is doing away with the widespread voter suppression that marks our country's electoral process. Voters, especially ethnic and racial minorities, face boundaries and hurdles that prevent them from actively taking part in the American government. Removing this stain on our democracy would allow for the entirety of the population to participate in and support our democratic processes and prevent further oppression. Furthermore, working to decrease the already intense polarization inhabiting our parties would further this goal. At the present time, our two-party system is stuck in a state of gridlock primarily due to to growing animosity between the two sides. If If this problem were to be remedied, our government would be able to once again function properly, improving the state of our democracy as a whole. Finally, our sense of unity and civic duty, in general, must once again be rediscovered. The American people are fractured, whether it be racial, religious, or political groups, with little existing that unites us. If the people of the United States were to once again realize what unites them and recommit themselves to the preservation and advancement of our and the American democracy would be revitalized and be allowed to flourish once more.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have learned something about American democracy, how it's changed, and what makes it important.